0: Hey, if you'll open up your Bibles, we are going to uh, dig into God's Word, as we do every week, and uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 and verses 15 through 22. And I'm going to go ahead and start reading here. Here we go. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Jesus had just got done uh, doing three parables, just, just exposing them for who they are. Hypocrites, outside the kingdom, false teachers, sick shepherds. He just embarrassed them. He's on the Temple Mount and, and he's there. now they, they just have to go away for a moment. We have, we're in a new section here. Uh, still the same context, still in the Temple Mount, still the confrontation with the religious leadership, but now things are, are changing because he's totally discredited them They're trying to challenge his authority because he'd been up there the day before he cleansed the temple. He had the great triumphal entry the day before that. And and now they're just, they're they're like, wow, we've got to do something. It says that the Pharisees went and plotted, conspired. They meant they had to get away for a second. And plotted how to entangle him, ensnare him, trap him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him not themselves, along with the Herodians. Talk about that. Saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. So here's the question. Please teach us. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful To pay taxes to Caesar or not? Ooh, loaded question. But Jesus, aware of their malice, their wickedness, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? (laughs) Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. <laughs> and like I said, these past weeks we've been in Matthews chapter 21 to 22, and in really in the Gospels we have entered uh, really the meat. It's the final week of Jesus' life, and we now we have... Eight chapters devoted to this one week. It's that important. Each of the Gospels spend most, most of their time in the final week of Jesus' life. And we're in midway in the week. It's Wednesday. And so we're continuing to walk with him. And again, he's being challenged by, I'm going to throw out a word for you, religionists. They knew how to do religion. But Jesus, throughout his ministry, but especially now, exposes them for the hypocrites that they are, who actually were not saved, were doomed, unless they did something. What did he say to the rich young ruler days before this? And we see in a few chapters before this, what did he tell them? What did he tell that rich young ruler when he says, what must I do to have eternal life? What did he essentially tell him? Give up everything and what? Follow him. Follow Jesus. Follow him. I've kept all the law. Well, go sell all that you have. He wasn't telling us we ought to be poor, but he exposed the idol of that young man's heart. This rich young ruler, a ruler in the synagogue, a very very religion-oriented kind of guy. He was righteous in his own eyes. I'm the key to salvation is what Jesus was saying. And if we see him in chapters 21-2, he's confronting, these are the leaders of Israel. You understand, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the high priests, they were in God's eyes the true leaders of Israel. Pontius Pilate was not the leader of Israel. Herod Antipas was not the leader of Israel. The Sanhedrin, made up of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the elders of Israel, they were the leaders and they're the ones that Jesus is confronting on their At their headquarters, the Sanhedrin met there on top of the Temple Mount, or very nearby, real close. He's gone to their turf, and he's taken them on, and he's exposed them for the frauds that they are. That temple cleansing was public. It was humiliating to those leaders, but it was the right thing to do, because they were blocking the entrance to the kingdom by their just absolute mockery of true worship of, of Yahweh so Jesus has come and he's clearing house and he's setting things straight and we're in the midst of this confrontation first he does three parables to show them that they have they're not wearing the garments God provided did Do you remember that from last week the wedding guests they had to have appropriate garments it's the ones that only God can provide it's not a righteousness that you can have of your own it's a righteousness that only God can provide it's called imputed righteousness. And we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more, but just to remind yourselves of what's going on here. And now Jesus is, is going to face now some tests from them. And he's going to turn the tables each time. And yeah, I use that phrase, turning the tables, overturning the tables, temple. Yeah, I am doing that on purpose. But he's going to expose them. We have to listen to his answers, okay? So that's what we're looking at here. And, and, and given the events of our past week, some of, well, most of you know, if you got the email, uh, Renee's father passed away this week. So it's it's a it's a heavy week for us. But all of us are going to face death. Unexpectedly. It's never expected. Right? And, and so this, what we're looking now, has inter- eternal import. It's critical that we take this seriously. You have to deal with Jesus. You have to. He's the most important man in all of history. And you and you can reject him, but there's consequence to it. And that's what he's warning people about. In in last week's message, what happened to the the guest who chose not to wear the wedding garments provided by the king? What what did the king do to that man? He cast him out to where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has used that phrase many times in the gospels, and what does he mean by that? Eternal hell. So Jesus is talking about this. We're not importing this into the discussion. So when we talk about Jesus and all that he's saying here, we have to understand eternity is at stake. And I would be a sick shepherd if I did not reveal this and and talk about this and talk exactly about what he's, with with the due importance, okay? So that's why I'm, I'm doing this. I'm not importing this. This is what he's been talking about. So I do pray that that. We would take a moment to reflect. We would would understand what he's been challenging these, these false teachers about. A true follower, a true welcomed guest, like we saw last week, to the wedding is wearing the appropriate wedding garments, those provided by God. It was promised in the Old Testament that God would provide special garments, Isaiah 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, my soul soul (laughs) shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation, he has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That was promised in the Old Testament, but provided in the new in Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, on our behalf, this was for us, this is what God did, He made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He took on our sins. Even though he had never sinned, he took it on for us. So that in him, if we are in Christ, if you are a Christian, it says we might become what? The righteousness of God. It's called a foreign righteousness, an alien righteousness, an imputed or credited righteousness that we receive, not because we deserve it, but because Jesus did it and gives it for those who would repent and follow Him and believe in Him. That's got to be so clear. We have to be clothed in Jesus' righteousness if we are going to stand before a holy God. Is that clear? I know I've said it a lot, but that's really what last week was about, what Jesus keeps talking about here. So I do pray that we would reflect, what is our belief about Jesus? What is your individual belief? And then, what does your life demonstrate? Because remember, it's not just knowing this that makes you saved and good with God. The demons know what I'm talking about. That's what James says, the half-brother of Jesus. He says, the demons know this, but they shudder. Why? Because they're not going to heaven. They've been judged and condemned already. They don't get what we get, the chance to repent. James says, you might say you have faith by your words, but I'll show you by my deeds, my lives. You guys, if you have, if you're a true Christian and you have the righteousness of Christ, and I'll put it a different way, if you have the Spirit indwelling you, if you're a Christian, the Spirit indwells you, you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, He's the seal and guarantee of our salvation, that righteousness, that Spirit will come out. What is that called? The fruit of the Spirit. So it doesn't mean perfection. It doesn't mean you'll be perfect. But here's the deal. If you're really saved, you're only saved by faith alone, but you're not saved by a faith that is alone. Do You get that difference? Real faith will produce fruit. Okay? So I'm not God. If you tell me you're a Christian, I can't look and you say, oh yeah, God set his seal on you. I don't have that kind of... God knows. But I can tell you, Examine yourself because Paul said the same thing. Look at your life. Is there any fruit? I talked about that last week. But I want that to be clear because, well, you know, that happened to us this week. We faced it. Uh, we, We watched a man face eternity. And that's, for me, as your older, well, not older brother, your brother, that's appropriate for me to warn you about because this was an unexpected death. But it could happen to any of us. I got bit by a spider. My arm was all swelled up on Sunday. I'd go to the emergency room. You know, it was all swelled up. My jaw was hurting. My body was aching. It could happen any time. So that's stuff for us to consider, okay? So I'm not trying to be a downer, but I want us to understand the seriousness of what we're talking about, okay? So when we look at this passage... We see that, that Jesus are, is facing opponents. He's facing the Pharisees and Herodians here. We'll see him face other guys in the next, there's more coming this week, or in the following weeks here. But in Matthew 22:15 15 says that the Pharisees went and plotted. They had to get away and, and conspire because he was just too in their face and they had to figure out how to trap him. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. All right. So we'll stop there for a second because we're going to talk about the Pharisees a little bit and then the Herodians. But I love Luke's commentary about this situation. He gives another take of this exact situation. And he says in Luke 20 20, so they watched him and sent spies. So these disciples they sent, they were really spies. It kind of gives you a, a picture of what's going on, who pretended to be sincere. Why? That they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. There was nothing sincere about this test. It was full of malice and hypocrisy. And I just love how it gets called out here. But first of all, the Pharisees, just some background on who they are. The Pharisees made up the largest and most important group amongst the religious leaders. Josephus said there are about 6,000 of them. All right? They were the teachers of the people, but they were not centered around the temple. They were out amongst the people in the land of Israel. All right? They were the teachers of the people. They controlled the synagogues and exercised great control over much of the population. They came about after what was the time of called what, the silent years, in the year of about 400 B.C. to the time of Christ. They kind of came about during that time because there was more and more influence in the land, and, and there's Gentile oppression of different countries if, with the Greco-Roman, well, the, Gre- the Greeks first and later the Romans. But because of all this influence, there was, there was a bunch of cultural pressure to conform, to assimilate to that uh, culture and life of the oppressors, all right? So the Pharisees, that word actually means to separate, purists who want to separate from. They're the ones who wanted to stay true to God, and they developed during this time period, all right? And they apparently were, they transformed Judaism to one of, of, that was mainly focused on the sacrifices of the temple to focusing more of the, on the law. They were the developers of what's called the oral tradition, basically the, all the accumulated commentaries about Scripture. Because you have all these Scriptures written by Moses and to the Jews from the past, and then they were saying, how can we apply this to everyday life? Their goal was not a bad goal. That's what we try to do as pastors, trying to apply what was written back then to now. That's the goal. What would happen, though, is that all, all these commentaries got heaped up and heaped up, and they became more and more rules that you had to follow, and this became a great burden on top of the law. You guys recognize that phraseology from Jesus? You're heaping burdens on men's back. That's exactly what they had done. By the time of Jesus, it was out of control. You can have, you can walk this far, but not any further. You can make food this way, you know, but don't. You can't do use that or this or that or this, and you can't go. You, I mean, they had rules for everything to be righteous, and oh boy, did they follow it! And boy, they wanted you to know they followed it. So these were the Pharisees. They had a desire to remain unique and distinct from the pagan influences. And it was the right idea at first, but it was way out of control by the time of Christ. They held to their traditions, all these commentaries and how you do it. They held to those more than they did to the actual scriptures. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is helping the crowds see past their teachings to see what's the real intent of the law. Okay? So that's, that's the Pharisees. Herodians, they actually weren't religious leaders, they were more political. The Herodians were supporters of who? Herod. Now there was a Herod, Herod the Great, who was before the time of Christ. Actually, he was alive. Just before, right after Jesus was born, he died a couple years later. But Herod the Great was given power in about 39 B.C., and, and he was a great builder, but he was an evil man, all right? That's why when the Magi came to Jerusalem, you know, everyone was stirred up because the Magi, hey, where's, where's he who was born king of the Jews? Like, Herod was crazy. He killed his own family because he didn't want any threats to his throne, all right? So Herod the Great, but he's not the one being talked about here on the Herodians. He was, they were a supporter of his family. And in, when, at Herod's death, he divided his, or his divider was, his empire was divided, and it was, I have to remember their names. Herod Antipas was in the north, Galilee, that region, and Herod Archelaus was in the south, and Herod Philip was another region. But Herod Archelaus in 6 A.D. Didn't rule well, so the Romans took his southern section, the area where Jerusalem was, Judea, okay, and they gave that section, it became Roman controlled, and there was a governor now put in charge called the prefect or also a procurator. And we know the one that started in AD 26 as Pontius Pilate. He was the governor over that section. Herod Antipas was in the north. The Roman control, primarily Roman control, was in the south, okay? These Herodians meant that they were supporters of Herod Herod Antipas, and they wanted Rome to give back control to the Herod family, okay? So they're totally political, and they came along as part of the plot. They were not recruited because they disagreed with Jesus religiously. They wanted to have the, the Herodians hear Jesus' answer, and then be the ones who go tattletale to the Roman governor. Okay, it's a politically charged question that Jesus has asked, but it's heavily theologically charged as well. Okay, so we see these two, the Pharisees and the Herodians getting together, and here's the deal. They were actually enemies, usually. They disliked each other. But that's the thing about Jesus is he really was a a lightning rod. These enemies now wanted to join together to go after him. Why? Because darkness hates the light. Right? So we'll just keep watching this. That's that's the situation. We see two enemies getting together to come after Jesus. All right? It says they went and counseled. They plotted. They they had to leave the situation. We don't know if they left the Temple Mount or they just went to a different part of the Temple Mount after he had just said three parables publicly. People knew that Jesus was going after the religious leaders in previous, so they had to get away. They plotted, and they wanted to ensnare and trap. And it's funny about this word is this word where it says that they wanted to entangle him. It's the same word used in Matthew four when Satan was trying to trap Jesus. Interesting link, huh? And they wanted to entangle him in his words and his teaching. They wanted to undermine him. They couldn't attack his miracles, could they? Why couldn't they attack his miracles? They're too public. Everyone saw him. He rose the dead. Uh, Two miles away from right where they were standing, he had publicly raised, there we go, Lazarus from the dead. And many believed in Jesus because of that, but some ran and told them, like, oh, my goodness, the religious leaders, we got to make sure we take care of this Jesus because, the people are going to follow him. We'll talk about that more in a second. But they couldn't get him for his miracles. They had to go after his words. We see them in their hypocritical praise. Teacher, we know that you are true. They sound like snakes. We know that you're true. And first of all, that word teacher, by the way, that that was really a title of highest honor that you could bestow on somebody. Instructor, master teacher, it was sarcasm almost. True, that word means straight, reality, truthful, sincere. Hey, we know you're a straight shooter. You teach the way of God truthfully. Jesus had, they saying you give answers pertaining to God's revealed ways. So here's the deal. In, in, in all these accolades they're giving him, this false accolades... They're really setting the stage for him to give a theological answer. Okay, They didn't want his opinion. They wanted him to give his his theological, here's the truth answer so they could catch him. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinion. You defer to no one. Wow, man of integrity. You're not swayed by appearance. He's not a respecter of men, meaning he fears man and he's going to change his answer. He was no chameleon. He said what the truth was no matter who asked. Boy, you wanna be like Jesus? Here's a really good trait, right? Do you water down your answers and somebody asks you, hey, what do you believe about this Jesus? It gets gets tempting, right? It's a temptation to, oh man, I don't want them to be mad at me. I'm gonna sound like a really narrow-minded bigot. Jesus answers. He answers straight up because did he fear man or fear God? Fear God, and that mean that word fear I mean there's trembling, but it's all, mainly it's respect and awe. So how big is your God, or how big are men in your life? And I mean man, the the seeking the applause and praise of man. You're not swayed by appearance, and notice they actually gave an accurate description, didn't they? Today was this very accurate about Jesus? Absolutely, but it's sad because they're still so blind, aren't they? They're flattering him, right? That's the excessive and insincere praise to further one's own interest, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. They were forcing Jesus to answer. They're giving public pressure, because this is amongst a crowd, a huge crowd on the Temple Mount. If he was evasive or didn't answer, it would absolutely undermine his credibility with the people. And that was their goal. They wanted to undermine this Jesus. And here's their test, their hypocritical test. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Well, there's a topic we love to talk about, taxes, right? Well, taxes have never been liked by anyone, anywhere of any time, all right? And let's—I think there's a slide. Go to the next slide. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll stick to that, and then I'll—and I I'll have another slide on what the taxes were in Israel, just for your for your sake here. But their their question was really a, a test on his perspective on Rome, but it's also a test on his perspective on Israel as God's people. Okay. The way Luke brackets this story in Luke twenty, we can see that they were trying to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Okay, so Matt, look at, listen what Luke says in twenty twenty. They were asking so as to deliver him Jesus. They were asking this question, this test, so as for the reason of delivering him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They asked a political question so that if he showed that he was against Rome, they could hand him over to the Romans, he'd be done for. But then Luke 20, 26 says this at the end of the story, says this, they were not, in the, they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. They were trying to either discredit him with Rome or with the people. He's tried, they're trying to catch him between a rock and a hard place. But what had he just said about a rock a few parables before? The chief cornerstone that the builders rejected became the chosen cornerstone. And if you didn't believe in Jesus, this rock remember I went through and showed you how he connect, Jesus connected the docks. He says, "You either trip over that rock, or that rock falls on you and crushes you. Jesus is the rock. They think they're getting in between a rock and a hard place, but they're not. He's the rock. And, and if they don't believe in him, and folks, if you don't believe in Jesus, Jesus himself said, you will be crushed. Jesus' own words, two parables before this. Here Jesus' opponents seek to force him to choose between revolution or accommodation to the Romans. Let's leave it at that. There's a hypocritical test. And when it comes to taxes, you can go to that next slide now. In normal Israeli life, like we all have, there's actually there was actually taxes that were God-given to support the temple, the priests, and, and the king and his army. That was just part of regular life. It wasn't a lot. all right. But then you also had, because of the Roman oppressors, and, and their government, they did actually provide services. If you look at what the Romans did throughout their empire, they connected their empire with an incredible highway. They're the ones who came up with the whole idea of this amazing highway and then garrisons all along to protect travelers. The commerce under the Roman Empire was unlike anyone had ever seen. And safety was called Pax Romana, peace, the Roman peace that they're able to establish over their whole empire. And these highways also made it so that they could connect and and transport people and armies especially much quicker. Well, there's a cost to providing that. And so they levied taxes. There's taxes on the produce of the field. There's items bought and sold, sales tax. There's a land tax, a poll tax, a, a kind of progressive income tax. We call it the census tax. That we see in Luke chapter 2, where did Mary and Joseph have to go to? Back to Bethlehem, because that was the land of his ancestors, because they did a census and you got taxed per head. So they did a census every few years and you got taxed yearly for, based on that sentence, census, so they could raise monies for for the empire. Well, this was the one that was controversial to the Israelis, because they say, we belong... To God, not to Rome. Okay? So that's the one where there's actually a revolt in AD 6, or in the mid, um, before Jesus' time, led by a man from Galilee over this issue. And the guys who joined him in revolting against Rome, by the way, he was killed, there was hundreds of thousands killed in that revolt. But the issue was this tax issue, and the guys who joined him were called zealots. Guys, recognize that at all? What? One of his own disciples was John the Zealot. We might call him John the terrorist or the revolutionary, right? You guys understand, Jesus had quite the hodgepodge of disciples. And it's funny because the zealot who would have fought against Roman tax would have had a hard time with another disciple the writer of this gospel, because what was Matthew's occupation? A tax collector. And that's what's talked about down here. Export and import customs paid at seaports and city gates were farmed out to private contractors, tax collectors. That was Matthew and Zacchaeus, who paid a sum in advance for the right to collect taxes in a certain area, but Rome had little restriction on how much profit the collector could take. That meant they would charge extra and line their pockets. So on the, our little group of disciples, one's a zealot, one's the opposite end of the spectrum, a tax collector. Yet in Christ, what were they able to be? Brothers, right? Because Jesus is way more important than anything else. He changes us, gives us a new identity. And folks, some people ask me, hey, why don't I speak more about government and politics and that? Guys, I want you to know, there's, we, I have my opinions, obviously, and you can talk to me privately, but publicly, you're not going to hear me tell you what to vote. Because I want you to know that Jesus Christ is the King and way more important. So I never want to be known as a church that has this political view or whatever. And, and we can certainly have them as private individuals, but the church has got to be known For one thing and one thing alone, the gospel of Jesus Christ, because eternity is at stake. I don't care who's in the office for the next four to eight to whatever years. I do as a private citizen, because I know who runs the universe, Jesus Christ, the King. King of kings, Lord of lords. But when people hear our message, if we're a political church, they can't get past our political message. They need, that's why I don't want to have anything in the way from them hearing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, okay? Okay. So I have opinions, but I want us to say, and you can have your opinions. Please hear that. We can disagree, that's okay. But as a church, we have to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So back to taxes. They, this is what this is kind of the taxes that they're trying to catch him in. They're trying to ask him a political question here. And Jesus gives an insightful answer that just absolutely knocks them back. But Jesus, aware of their malice, notice he knows that this is evil. You know, he knows that it was deliberate wickedness. He doesn't fall into their trap. It's a yes or no question that they're asking him. But he's going to answer them on his own terms to expose their hypocrisy. And their words, they were insincere, no real respect for him and full of hypocrisy. Their partnership, they disliked each other. They had exactly opposite political views from each other, and weren't seeking Jesus out to settle their dispute, but they were hypocrites. Their, teacher, you are truthful. Well, their motivation was totally hypocritical. They weren't seeking to learn. They didn't want to follow his teaching. They didn't seek the truth, nor did they want to know what God's true will was, appealing to the fear of god rather they were hoping to gain the man's intervention Rome's intervention that's what they were seeking they wanted rome to take care of this that's what the herodians were with them to go tattle on him they were relying on the fear of man said that already in trying to gain the people's approval or the government's help in undermining and destroying jesus here's the deal if they really cared about god's will what would they have tested Jesus on, purely and simply? God's Word, because that is God's will. They would have, but by this point, after three years, every time Jesus teach, here's what happens. The people are amazed at His teaching, because He had authority, not like those of the scribes and Pharisees. That was at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, but it's repeated So they couldn't really test him on his teaching because they knew he was a true teacher. But they just didn't want to follow him, right? So that shows that they were not godly. Because if they were godly, what should they have done? Repented and followed him. It's simple. And that's what many did do. And matter of fact, we do find that some of these Pharisees did become Christ followers, Christians. Name me two of them. You know them. Nicodemus, John chapter 3. We're not sure what happens in John chapter 3, but by the end, he's one of the two that goes and gets the body of Jesus. He's saying to the Sanhedrin, I follow him. That's the body of the guy I follow. There's another one. Joseph of Arimathea. Okay, the rich guy who gave his tomb up. He was also a member of the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee who went to go get the body. So we know, and matter of fact, in, in Acts chapter uh, 15, we know that a lot of Pharisees at that point, probably 20, uh, 10, 15 years after Jesus' resurrection, had become followers as well. Because there was controversy, it says that many of the party of the Pharisees who had become Christians. So there, were, there was a turning and repenting. Please hear that. Okay? You guys got that? But, but many at this point wouldn't do it because... How do we know? Because within a day and a half, Jesus was on a cross because of these guys. Throughout the Gospels, we see that they feared the crowds that, quote, just for example, in Matthew 14, 5, 21, 26, and 46, it means that they have no integrity. Because to have integrity is you know the right thing and you do the right thing. If they knew that he was a true teacher, they should have repented and followed him but they feared the crowds that showed their real heart look just look at this in john 11 45 through 53 many of the jews therefore who had come with mary and had seen what he did G- this john 11 is where G- jesus rose lazarus raised lazarus from the dead they saw what he did and believed in jesus but some of them these jews who had seen the this major miracle, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They're tattletaling on Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees, they hated each other, by the way, gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Yeah, that's Right? And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What were they concerned about? The truth or what? Prestige, power, status, their place. They liked the praise of man. But one of them, Caiaphas, recognize that name, who was the high priest that year said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you, for us all, That one man should die for the people. Wow. And not that the whole nation should perish. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The people are following him. Who cared? They didn't even consider, is he really God's man or not? The people are following him. Rome might come in and attack us, and we'll lose our place in our nation. If he's the Messiah, a true man of God, raising the dead... These guys were not just, these guys were the religious leaders, folks. You understand? That's what's so mind-boggling about this situation. So that's their, uh, Jesus just reveals their character straight up. And he masterfully illustrates his teaching. Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage for a, a, a worker. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And They said, Caesar's couple things about this first of all a denarius was a roman coin i'll show you the picture in a second it's kind of fun but here's the deal did jesus have one of those roman coins no but who did they did they gave him one a roman coin would be considered unclean because it belongs to the romans but did jesus have one they're trying to make him sound unclean he's like well i don't have one you guys got one? Oh yeah we do just, just, oh, wow, that's kind of ironic. But let's go to the picture, the next slide. So this is a, a Roman denarius, okay? One side is obviously the picture, that's, that's Tiberius, okay? He was the Caesar of the time. And it's, a, it's actually a very offensive coin because it's a very theological coin, all right? Listen to this. You've got Tiberius' face with the wording, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So if he's the son of the divine Augustus, who is dead by this point, Caesar Augustus, what does that make Tiberius? The son of God? Deity. It was a theological statement. By the way, there's, there's a certain commandment that the Jews would know right away that they didn't like that. You shall have no graven images. Images. So that's a very theological coin on one side. He's claiming deity, but on the other side, there's that. There's that picture. It's the Roman goddess Pax, P-A-X, okay? And the wording around it says Pontifex Maximus, literally meaning high priest, okay? And the word pontifex means chief bridge builder, but that meant, meant high priest. Well, who had a high priest? The Jews. It ain't that guy, Okay, so one side of the coin says he's God. The other one says he's the head of all true religion. It's an offensive coin. It's a theological statement. And they had it, but he didn't. (laughs) So he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He was demoting Caesar to man's status by saying this. Because he's saying, render to Caesar, that's his picture, give it to him. But to God's, he wasn't calling Caesar God. He demoted him in just that statement. Render to Caesar. Caesar, by the way, he is here affirming paying taxes. And he's not alone in affirming this. We see this in, in Romans. Paul writing to Christians, 13, 1 through 7, it's very clear. God appoints governments that we're supposed to submit to. And we're like, oh, because there's, there's controversy about taxes and stuff. And we, hey, we're in, a, we're in a nation where we can vote about taxes. We can talk to our representatives and all that. And you should, okay? But... In the meantime, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Because when Paul was saying this, and even when Jesus was saying this, those Caesars were way worse than anyone we've ever had as the President of the United States or heading up our government. Okay? So to be real clear, if you're anti government, you've got to deal with that. Because the Bible says submit to those in this, in the, who are governing authorities over you. Pray for them, and we can vote here and stuff. We're still supposed to say it out loud. Submit. Okay, it doesn't mean blind following, but it does say submit. Proverbs 8:15. By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. Unrighteous rulers will get they'll have to pay their dues, but God's in charge. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And it goes on. Okay, just to keep that real clear. And then he says, render to God the things that are God's. We have a spiritual obligation. Question is, and I got to run this, what belongs to God in your life and what are you holding back? What belongs to God and what are you holding back? Because if you're a Christian, what belongs to God? everything what are you holding back again i'm not look i have no agenda for any of you just I'm, I'm looking around just to have that dramatic pause i want you to think about it but you have to do some self evaluation i have to what are you holding back and then we see Jesus' victory because there, there's amazement and silence. Imagine that Jews being silent. And I'm I, when I I'm just I'm not being trying to be racist or anything. They'll I was in Israel and we had some rabbis tell us, "Hey, when well, you've got three rabbis, you'll have five opinions, and you'll hear them a lot and aloud." There was silence at Jesus' answer. Silence. When they heard it, they marveled, they were amazed, they left him and went away. Luke 20, 26, they weren't able to get him, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Mark twelve seventeen. they marveled, they were greatly marveling is what that means. Okay, a couple things here. Do you marvel at Jesus Christ? Are you amazed? Are you apathetic? Do you praise him as Savior or push back and, and pass over? Do you surrender and submit to him as Lord? Or shut him out and shout, crucify him? And then, look at the last slide. Are you a religionist? Oh, Are you a religionist? Going through the motions, doing the Sunday thing. I go to church, I'm a good person, I'm better than so-and-so. Ah... We never compare ourselves to other people. There's only one person we're allowed to compare ourselves to, and it's Jesus Christ. And you should say to yourself, oh my goodness, I fail miserably. And you know what? That's right. You're not saved because of what you deserve or how great you are. You're not saved because none of us are. You're saved because of how great He is. And His call to you is mourn over your own sin, cry out to Him for salvation, and what will He do? He will save you. But this is not just a cry out and then you live how you want. You've got to follow him as Lord. Is he the Lord of your life? Or are you a religionist? Because that's who he's confronting here. So let's ask ourselves that question too, right? It's appropriate. I pray that God opens uh, ears and eyes today, not just of people who aren't Christians. I pray that he opens our eyes, that we're a little bit, tweaked by what he's saying and asking ourselves the harder questions. Great is his mercy and compassion. Please hear that. But we need to, when he's confronting people, we always have to put ourselves, is there something I need to be confronted about? All right? This is so important, folks. Eternity's at stake. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to step past the last song and kind of close up our, our service today. Um, let me remind you, there's, there's benevolence, the offering envelopes in the back. There's a baptism today, which is celebrating new life in Jesus Christ, right? Baptism doesn't save, but it's a celebration of the new life in Jesus. But folks, I want you, if you need to talk to somebody, take advantage of that. If you need to talk to somebody about your faith, you have questions because of what you've heard today, or you realize, you know what, I need to... I need. I, there's things going wrong in my life. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need someone to help me and hold me accountable and help me in this process. Come talk to me, okay? There's other great people here who will help you. Is that okay just to consider that? Yes, I'm so glad you're here today. But, you know, obviously in my life and our family's life, there was a serious situation. Someone passed into eternity and uh, it's just heavy on my heart for you all to, for you to consider your eternity because uh, it's, it's inevitable what are the two things inevitable? Death and taxes. <laughs> Let's pray, and we'll close up the service with this. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you, Jesus, for throughout your life displaying both, both compassion and mercy, and yes, you, yet you are also a man of conviction and truth. You're a man who is so patient with people and, and lovingly leading them, and, and yet you would also call out sin. Lord, you were all about righteousness. And yet when you saw fake, legalistic, hypocritical righteousness, self-righteousness, you would call that out too. And you call people to yourself for salvation. You call people to repent of their sins, to have a, a change of mind about what sin is and, and who you are and then turning towards you for, for forgiveness. And turning forward, towards you for salvation, turning towards you to be to, for that wedding feast we got to talk about last week. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy, your grace. Thank you, God, for loving us so much to send your Son. But Lord, may we consider seriously the direction of our lives and uh, in our relationship to you. And all the while we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. God, we love you. Thank you for our time today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.